This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Here's the third episode of India United. This is our special series on the integration of princely states. during this freedom month in the last two episodes i had been talking about the constitutional and legal questions involved particularly in the last episode i was talking about the stellar role of vp menon as the negotiator in chief and patel's able deputy in the state's department I stopped with the key speech of Lord Mountbatten the last viceroy on 25th of July 1947 Now here's a summary of where things stood on July 25 the chamber of princes in new delhi bore witness to a historic speech by Lord Mountbatten This address holds significance. It encapsulated the British government's intentions, the role of princely states, and uh, the imminent transformation of the Indian subcontinent. Mountbatten's speech emphasized the need for unity and cooperation among all stakeholders as India prepared to embark on its journey. towards sovereignty mountbatten deftly tackled the issue of whether the princely states would accede to india or pakistan he emphasized the benefits of integration and cooperation now the speech underscored two main points first the princely states were encouraged to join either india or pakistan taking into consideration three factors geographical proximity communal composition and economic viability second for those princely states that faced difficulties in deciding their course of action he proposed a standstill agreement it meant that existing arrangements with the british government would continue with the new indian government until a final decision was reached that speech played a pivotal role in influencing the decisions of several princely states the state's integration with india or pakistan was not only based on geographical or communal considerations but also on their recognition of the changing political dynamics and the inevitability of independence this proactive approach by mountbatten paved the way for a unified nation and a stronger foundation for india's nation building efforts for the princes the mountbatten speech was a wake up call their cozy relationship with their protector was about to come to an end 
the princely states exhibited varying responses to the speech. They were driven by factors such as historical ties, regional dynamics, and internal political considerations. Some rulers welcomed it. They saw there an opportunity for the unity and prosperity of India as a whole. They also recognized that unity and cooperation could bring about socio-economic growth and strengthen their position in the post-independence era. On the other hand, a few were apprehensive about the prospect of integration. They had concerns, concerns about losing their privileges, autonomy and dynastic rule. States like Hyderabad and Kashmir, for example, were particularly concerned about joining the Indian Union. This was due to their unique circumstances and the fragile communal predicament in those regions. Yet other rulers adopted a pragmatic approach. They used Mountbatten's speech as an opportunity to bargain for better terms. They sought favorable conditions, including safeguards for their religious, cultural, and administrative autonomy. They recognized that their state's strategic importance and resources could potentially grant them a stronger negotiating position. Now, there were some concerns in London, of course. It was clear that the Viceroy had presented a vision, really, which was different from that of the Secretary of State, a point that I did discuss in the last episode. The Secretary of State had promised in a House of Lords debate that there would be not the slightest pressure on the Prince's voluntary and momentous decisions. Yet, it was clear that Attlee, the Prime Minister, had already given Mountbatten plenipotentiary powers. It meant that Mountbatten was free to frame his own policies and did not have to look up to London for approval. Eventually, Mountbatten was not even reprimanded. So, for the sake of time in our hands, which is limited, let me now take up some key studies. Now, these key studies will offer an impression of the complexities which were involved in the process in some detail. In this episode, I'll talk about the integration of Hyderabad. The story was complex and it had several phases and dimensions. But why Hyderabad? Simple. It was the largest among the princely states. If Hyderabad were an independent country, it would have been among the top 20 members of the United Nations. So what happened in Hyderabad? On 3rd June of 1947, Viceroy Mountbatten declared that the British would leave India on 
15th of August. Soon after, the Nizam of Hyderabad issued an order or a farman. He staked claim to independence once British paramountcy lapsed. Hyderabad intended to join neither India nor Pakistan. In July 1947, the Nawab of Chhatari, who was a president of Nizam's executive council, went to Delhi and held discussions with members in the state's department, Patel and Menon and their team primarily. The discussions revolved around two issues. One, the return of Berar to the Nizam. And two, the question of whether Hyderabad should become a dominion or it would sign the instrument of accession with India. Mountbatten said that the people of Berar should be allowed to choose where they wish to belong. Dominion status for Hyderabad was unfeasible. It would not be allowed to become part of the British Commonwealth. Mountbatten used all his powers of persuasion to convince the delegation of the advantages of joining India. He highlighted, for example, the expected positive impact on the three key areas of uh, external affairs, defense and communications. Hyderabad's geographical proximity to India, its economic dependence on the surrounding region, its culture, its history, and the close ties of its people with the rest of India were cited as reasons, reasons to join India, that is. But the Chhatari delegation kept insisting, really, that the Nizam would never consider accession to India. He believed it would compromise his sovereignty. Now, the day of India's independence was drawing near, and there was no sign of a breakthrough with discussions with Hyderabad. Mountbatten recommended that Hyderabad should be granted an extension for two months. And the proposal was readily accepted. So what was Hyderabad like? Hyderabad's income and expenditure in 1947-48 rivaled Belgium's and exceeded the income of the top 20 member states of the United Nations. The majority of its population was uh, made up of Hindus. They were concentrated mostly in rural areas. The Urdu-speaking Muslim minority, on the other hand, was primarily urban, and they were employed in the army, police, and civil services. Quite obviously, they held extraordinary power and control over the Telugu, Kannad, and Marathi-speaking Hindu communities. Hyderabad had a terrible record in terms of uh, political, civil, and religious liberties. Some parts of the state, such as the Telangana region, 
suffered uh, from horrible feudal exploitation the nizam's pitch for an azad hyderabad or independent hyderabad in 1946 was backed by a formation called majlis e ittihad ul muslimin which formed the regime's main support base the ittihad had been founded in 1926 by Mahmud Nawaz Khan who was a retired official um they wanted to unite the muslims of hyderabad in support of the nizam but and this is more important they also wanted to reduce the hindu majority by large scale conversions and by encouraging muslims from north india to migrate and settle in hyderabad that caused a conflict of interest between the immigrants on the one hand and both hindu and muslim subjects who had an earlier stake in nizam's administration they now felt that their social position may be threatened so they formed another resistant formation called the mulki movement or the movement of those who had been living in hyderabad those who considered hyderabad their homeland or mulk now they were this mulki movement and its leaders and followers were keen on excluding newcomers migrants from positions of power and authority now the muslims who had migrated to hyderabad from north india felt somewhat isolated that made them support the idea of bringing all muslims together which gave birth to a new battle cry that of a muslim sovereignty of hyderabad now the ittihad also began to be increasingly influenced by the idea of a homogenized muslim identity in 1938 the constitution of the ittihad was revised and the sovereignty of hyderabad was vested not in the person of the nizam but in the muslims of hyderabad the ittihad now began to showcase a strong communal identity that communal identity reached new heights with the entry of kasim razvi who now became in 1946 the president of the organization kasim razvi was um, a lawyer from latur and he inaugurated a new chapter of extreme fanaticism now under his leadership the razakars or armed militia or armed brigades of the ittihad were trained encouraged and indeed provoked to assault hindus their objective was to strike terror and reduce the hindu majority to an inferior position quite obviously therefore muhammad ali jinnah and the muslim league were happy 
to agree with the ittihad on this point. But what did all this mean for Nizam and the prospects of accession to India? It meant that the Nizam was under tremendous pressure from Razvi and the Ittihad when it came to negotiating with the government of India. Although Nizam's claim for an independent Hyderabad was fully backed by the Ittihad, they also wanted him to defend the Muslim status of Hyderabad at an all-India level. So gradually, the Nizam gave in to the Ittihad and its demand for Hyderabad to be the face of Muslims within India, all Muslims within India. Intelligence reports show that the Ittihad planned to establish, and I quote, a Pakistan in the Deccan by force if the Nizam were to join India or Indian Union eventually. This plan obviously included the expulsion of the Hindu communities. Arms and ammunition were manufactured on a large scale at Hyderabad. A large number of Muslim refugees made their way to Hyderabad in the months following the partition. And they were immediately recruited by the state police and the military. Now, another set of complicating factors involved the activities of the Arya Samaj, which was a Hindu reformist organization, along with the Hyderabad State Congress. Uh, they launched activities in 1939. They were responding, really, to the discrimination faced by the Hindu communities in Hyderabad. Sholapur was um, an epicenter from where jathas or branches of Satyagraha volunteers of Arya Samajists entered Hyderabad. The state congress workers as well as Arya Samajists immediately faced arrests in Hyderabad. But they carried on nonetheless. The Nizam administration conveyed its concern about these developments to the government of Bombay. But that communication often proved useless and futile because Congress was now holding power in Bombay. K.M. Munshi, who was then the Home Minister of the Bombay government, deliberately turned a blind eye to the Hindu and Sikh mobilization in Sholapur. In July 1946, Nizam's government finally lifted the ban on Hyderabad State Congress. And yet, the State Congress rejected the new constitution and boycotted the elections. In June 1947, with the announcement of uh, the British decision to quit India, and the Nizam's Farman of an Azad Hyderabad, Swami Ramanand Tirtha, who was the president of the Hyderabad State Congress, announced the need for a responsible government 
and of accession to the Indian Union, the State Congress firmly believed that Hyderabad was an all India problem and that a peaceful settlement with the Nizam was unlikely, if not altogether impossible. There was a third complication too, which also posed a serious threat to the feudal and aristocratic regime of the Nizam. The peasants of the Telangana region rose in arms against the exploitation of the peasantry and the brutal repression by the Razakas. The landlords there um, were the focus of their grievances. These landlords obviously belonged to superior castes, higher castes, and they were known as Dora and enjoyed the support, but obviously, of the Nizam's regime. The peasants initially protested by defending their customary rights, by uh, conversion to other religions, and also by obstruction of sale and transportation of their grains, and, of course, by songs of protest, and finally, by theft. Between July 46 and October 51, Telangana witnessed the biggest peasant guerrilla warfare in the history of modern India. Parallel governments were formed in nearly 4,000 villages. The Telangana rebellion was led by the communists. They had gained sympathy even from the state congress since the struggle had the potential of striking a blow to the very edifice of the Nizam's government. The communists and the Andhra Mahasabha, which was a linguistic regional organization, um, eventually um, was dominated by the communists. And these were also the two organizations which led virtually and practically the anti-landlord and anti-Nizam Telangana movement. The landlords lined up with the Razakars, quite obviously. The Telangana rebellion reached its zenith, really, between August 1947 and September 1948. So, given the complexity of the situation in Hyderabad and the potential for communalism and riots, which already took place, really, um, to spread to other provinces on the subcontinent, it was necessary for the government of India to come to some kind of an understanding with the Nizam. So Walter Moncton, who was the legal advisor to Hyderabad, suggested a temporary one-year agreement that would allow for further negotiations about accessions to take place. The government of India hoped that the agreement would also prevent the Nizam from acceding to Pakistan. It was at that point a very genuine concern. 
But there were also other strategic considerations. The Indian army was already engaged in Kashmir at the time. India could not fight a war possibly on two fronts. Above all, there was hope that the agreement would contain the cry of Azad Hyderabad, at least temporarily. On Nizam's side too, time was a crucial factor. The agreement allowed him to build up Hyderabad's strength to a position where in future he could make a successful bid for independence. The withdrawal of the Indian army from Hyderabad was one of the terms of this agreement, which would effectively enable the armed wing of the Ittehad or the Razakars to pursue the idea of Azad Hyderabad more effectively. So there was this, the standstill agreement was signed by the government of India and Hyderabad on 29th of November 1947. Jawaharlal Nehru, India's Prime Minister said that, and I quote, this means we shall have peace for one year, unquote. K.M. Munshi, who was appointed India's Agent General in Hyderabad, later wrote in his memoirs, and I quote, The country felt that by entering into a standstill agreement, the government of India had lost its grip over Hyderabad affairs, unquote. Instead of political and communal consolidation during the period of the agreement, that is next one year, Conditions in Hyderabad actually deteriorated. Violent incidents on the border with Bombay increased considerably. Now, Bombay, Madras and central provinces shared borders with Hyderabad. The rise in border incidents became a major cause for concern. At the conference held in the state's ministry on 21st of February 1948, the premiers of these three provinces informed Sardar Patel of the seriousness of the situation. The government of India made it clear that it could not spare troops at the moment. K.M. Munshi, the agent general in Hyderabad, therefore signed a pact with Laik Ali, who was the Prime Minister of Hyderabad. The objective was to prevent the escalation of border tensions. Yet, neither of them really was certain about its implementation. But what were really the border problems? Let me take up one or two particular cases to give you a detailed idea. The case of the Sholapur district of Bombay is a good example. Sholapur had six talukas or administrative units below the level of a district. Now, almost all of them uh, shared borders with the Nizam's territory, but the Barsi taluka in particular had several villages 
which were um, in a sense an enclave in the Hyderabad state. Therefore, they were easy targets for the Ittehad's Razakars as the villagers had to uh, pass through Hyderabad's territory in order to access the remaining part of Sholapur districts. The frequency of armed raids on these villages increased at an alarming pace. And the Nizam's official often detained travelers in transit. The customs checkpoints supported extortion rackets, which deeply affected trading activity in that area. Traders and their goods were held in custody for several days, which created a major risk, really, to their lives and property. The railway became another easy target for armed attacks by the Razakars. Numerous assaults were carried out. They were reported by the staff and the passengers traveling on the Great Indian Peninsula Railway and the Barsi Light Railway. And both of these passed through the Sholapur district. There was a real danger of communication lines being cut off between the north and the south of India. Let's take one particular incident. On 22nd of May 1948, there was this incident in Gangapur. The train from Madras to Bombay was attacked by a group of armed men at the Gangapur station in Hyderabad. Armed Razakars stood on the platform during this incident. So these circumstances posed a problem, a serious problem to the district administration at Sholapur. Their complaints to the Nizam's government were matched by counter-complaints. The officials at Hyderabad refused to acknowledge, leave alone take responsibility for the border incidents which were brought to their notice. So um, the Razakars generally adopted a hit and run approach in their raids on villages. Whenever they met resistance from the police or the villages, they simply left. Their aim was primarily to cause panic among the villagers in Indian territories. Houses were set on fire, cattle were driven away, and crops were destroyed or burned. The Nizam's officials claimed that uh, subversive elements allegedly operated from Sholapur, and they allegedly damaged toddy trees, burned customs, dockies or outposts and destroyed customs records. They also claimed that their attempts to bring the culprits to the book were foiled by Sholapur administration. So this was really a trade of accusations and counter accusations leading to absolutely no concrete action and total chaos. Frankly, it is difficult to verify these claims and counterclaims. What is clear, however, is that if the border incidents progressed unchecked and spilled over into the adjacent provinces, 
they might not only disrupt communication lines between the north and the south but also constitute a threat to peace on the entire subcontinent no amount of diplomatic skill from the veterans in the ministry of states could persuade the nizam to accede to india in fact mountbatten returned to england with the question of hyderabad remaining unsettled meanwhile no sooner had the ink dried on the standstill agreement than delhi and hyderabad began accusing each other of violating it although the indian forces had withdrawn from hyderabad according to the agreement the nizam alleged that delhi forced an economic blockade on hyderabad um causing bottlenecks in imports the non supply of arms and ammunition became another issue of contention above all the nizam vociferously protested against the adverse reporting um against uh, i suppose negative reporting on hyderabad in the indian press the nizam meanwhile issued two ordinances and these two were a clear breach of the standstill agreement the first one restricted export of all precious metals from hyderabad to india the other declared that indian currency would not be accepted as legal tender in the state the nizam was also under obligation to stick to the state's forces scheme of 1939 yet he refused to accept the appointment of a state military adviser in hyderabad the disbanding of the razakars was also an empty promise on top of it the nizam engaged in diplomatic maneuvers to legitimize the azad hyderabad cause he appointed agents in several foreign countries as a matter of fact on 23rd of march 1948 the government of india sent an official communication to the nizam which gave details of these breaches of the standstill agreement like ali the nizam's prime minister responded by making counter allegations in the meantime the border situation was steadily declining and deteriorating Delhi sent another letter to Hyderabad on 15th of May and called for a ban on the Razakars. Mountbatten made a last attempt to salvage the situation before leaving India on 21st of June, but his telegram was met with a negative reply from the Nizam. The Nizam meanwhile upped the ante and sent a delegation on September 7th 1948 to the United Nations Security Council this delegation wanted to present hyderabad's case for independence before the security council on the same day september 
Jawaharlal Nehru announced the final demands to be made on the Nizam in the Parliament of India. An ultimatum was sent on 12th of September through K.M. Munshi, who was India's agent general in Hyderabad. The next day, on 13th September 1948, Indian soldiers, Indian military, Indian army, went for action against Hyderabad under the command of Major General J.N. Chaudhary. Now, the mission was called Operation Polo. The main forces entered from the Sholapur Road. A smaller force came from the Bejwala Road. They met with stiff resistance for the first two days. By 17, sorry, by September the 17th, the Nizam's army surrendered. That is within four days. And on the next day, Indian troops marched into Hyderabad city. Operation Polo was declared a total success. A little over 800 people died on both sides. The Razakars suffered the majority of the casualties. The Nizam withdrew the Hyderabad case from the Security Council on 23rd of September. The government of India made it clear that he would not be deposed as long as Hyderabad fell in line with the other states and remained loyal to India. The Nizam accepted the offer. He invested the military governor with the power to issue regulations which had the force of law. So Hyderabad had uh, a military administration until the end of 1945. That in short, in very, very short, brief uh, recall is the story of Hyderabad's integration to the independent India. It was full of twists and turns. It had drama. It had several political agents involved, an intransigent Nizam, several border disputes, extensive oppression, by the armed militia of the ordinary people. There was riot. There was even, as I said, a delegation to the United Nations. That brings an end to the third episode of History Chatter. We are talking about the integration of princely states to independent India. In the final episode, I'll bring around several other cases of equal intrigue, mystery, suspicion, but finally integration. I'll see you next week. This is Anirban and goodbye.